That completes Welsh questions. Before we come to the Prime Minister's questions, I would like to point out that the British Sign Language Interpretation of Proceedings is available to watch on Parliament Live TV. We start with questions to Prime Minister Kate Knifton. Yeah, yeah, Question number one, please, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, I know members from across the House will be as shocked and appalled as I am about the case of David Carrick. The abuse of power is truly sickening, and our thoughts are with his victims. The police must address the failings in this case, restore public confidence, and ensure the safety of women and girls. There will be no place to hide for those who use their position to intimidate those women and girls or those who have failed to act to reprimand and remove those people unfit from office. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As the project champion for the North Midlands Manufacturing Corridor, next week I am bringing together businesses, leaders and local councillors from across the region in Parliament to set out to Department for Transport officials the importance of the A50, A500 corridor. The Prime Minister understands the importance of investing in our infrastructure and unlocking the potential of our towns and cities. So will he urge government colleagues from Bays and DLUC to attend the meeting and to hear more about the benefits this investment would bring to our region? Mr Speaker, the Government recognises the strategic importance of the A50, A500 corridor to the Midlands. I know final decisions on this scheme will be made in the third road investment strategy, which is fully published next year, but I know my honourable friend will be contacting ministers in the relevant departments to invite them to hear her case. We now come to the Leader of the Opposition, Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join with the Prime Minister in his comments about the dreadful case of Carrick? Mr Speaker, it's three minutes past twelve. If somebody phones if somebody phones nine 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 now because they have chest pains and fear it might be a heart attack, when would the Prime Minister expect an ambulance to arrive? Mr Speaker, it's absolutely right that people can rely on the emergency services when they need them. And that's why we're rapidly implementing measures to improve the delivery of ambulance times and indeed urgent and emergency care. But I'd say to the honourable gentleman, if he cares about ensuring that patients get access to life-saving emergency care when they need it, why won't he support our minimum safety legislation? Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister could deflect all he likes, but for the person for the person suffering from chest pains, the clock started ticking straight away. Every minute counts. That's why the government says an ambulance should be there in 18 minutes. In that case, it would mean just about 20 past 12. Now, I, don't, I know he doesn't want to answer the question I asked him, so I'm going to ask him again. When will that ambulance arrive? Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, because of the extra funding we're putting in to relieve pressure in urgent and emergency care departments, because of the investment we're putting in in ambulance call handling, we will improve ambulance times as we are recovering from the pandemic and indeed the pressures of this winter. But I say to the honourable gentleman again, because he makes my case for me, he describes the life-saving care that people desperately need. So why? 
when in other countries like France, Spain, Italy and others, why is he depriving people here that care? Mr Speaker, he obviously doesn't know or doesn't care. I'll tell him. If our heart attack victim had called for an ambulance in Peterborough at 12.03, it wouldn't arrive until 10 past 2. These are our constituents waiting for ambulances I'm talking about. If it was Northampton, it wouldn't arrive until 20 past 2. Order, order, order. Mr Blister, I hope you want to see the rest of the questions out. Because I want you to be here, but you're going to have to behave better. Come on, Kiss Dahmer. Mr Speaker, I'm talking about our constituents. If they were in Northampton, it wouldn't arrive until 20 past two. If they were in Plymouth, it wouldn't arrive until 20 to three. That's why someone who fears a heart attack waiting more than two and a half hours for an ambulance. Not the worst case scenario, just the average wait. So for one week, will he stop blaming others, take some responsibility and just admit under his watch, the NHS is in crisis, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Mr Speaker, I noticed the one place the honourable gentleman didn't mention was Wales, yeah. where we know ambulance times are even worse than they are in England, Mr Speaker. No, and the reason, the reason that is the case, because this is not about politics. This is about the fact that the NHS in Scotland, in Wales, in England, is dealing with unprecedented challenges, recovering from COVID, dealing with a very virulent and early flu season, and everyone is doing their best to bring those wait times down. But again, I'll ask him, if he believes so much in improving ambulance wait times, why won't he support our minimum safety legislation? Mr Speaker, he won't answer any questions and he won't take any responsibility. By one o'clock, our heart attack victim is in a bad way. Sweaty, dizzy, chest tightening. This is a heart attack and they're shouting, this is your constituent. By that time, they should be getting treatment. But an hour after they've called 999, they're still lying there, waiting, listening to the clock tick. How does he think they feel knowing an ambulance could be still hours away? Well, Mr Speaker, the specific and practical things we are doing to improve ambulance times are clear. We are investing more in urgent and emergency care to create more bed capacity. We are ensuring that the flow of patients through emergency care is faster than it ever has been. We are discharging people at a record rate out of hospitals to ease the constraints that they are facing. And we are reducing the call-out rates by moving people out of ambulance stacks and being dealt with in a community. Now, these are all very practical steps that will make a difference in the short term. But I ask him again and again, and we know why. The reason that he is not putting patients first when it comes to ambulance waiting times is because he is simply in the pockets of his union paymaster. Mr Speaker, this isn't hypothetical. This is real life. Stephanie from, Ply- Stephanie from Plymouth was battling cancer when she collapsed at home. Her mum rang 999 desperate for help. She only lived a couple of miles from the hospital, but they couldn't prioritise her. She was 26 when she died waiting for that ambulance. 
a young woman whose life was ended far too soon. As a dad, I can't even fathom that pain. So, on behalf of Stephanie and her family, will you stop the excuses, stop shifting the blame, stop the political games, and simply tell us when will he sort out these delays and get back to the 18-minute wait? Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, of course Stephanie's case is a tragedy. Of course. People are working as hard as they can to ensure people get the care they need. But he talks about political games. He is a living living example of playing political games when it comes to people's health care. I've already mentioned what's been going on in Wales. Is he confident in the Labour-run Wales NHS that nobody is suffering right now? Of course they are, Mr Speaker, because the NHS everywhere is under pressure. What we should be doing is supporting those doctors and nurses to make the changes that we are doing to bring the care to those people. But I'll ask him this. If he is so, so concerned, so concerned about making sure that the Stephanies of the future get the cares they need, why? Why is he denying those families the guarantee of emergency life-saving care? So that's his answer to Stephanie's family. Deflect, blame others, never take responsibility. Just like last week, he won't say when he's going to deliver the basic minimum service levels people need. Mr Speaker, over the 40 minutes or so that these sessions tend to last, 700 people will call an ambulance. Two will be reporting a heart attack. Four will be reporting a stroke. But instead of the rapid help they need, many will wait and wait and wait. So if he won't answer any questions, will he at least apologise for the lethal chaos under his watch? Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, he... uh He asks about the minimum safety levels. We we will deliver them as soon as we can pass them. Why won't he vote for them, first of all? But, Mr Speaker, Speaker, we we are delivering on the people's priorities. As we've seen this week, the Honourable Gentleman will just say anything if the politics suits him. It's as simple as that. He will break promises left, right and centre. He promised to nationalise public services. He promised to have a second referendum. He promised to defend the mass migration of the EU. And now we're apparently led to believe that he... Oh, oh, I expect the front bench just to keep a little quiet, because if they don't, there's somewhere else for them to shout their noise. Thanks. Mr. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, if we are going to deliver for the British people, people need to have strong convictions. But when it comes to the honourable gentleman, he isn't just for the free movement of people; he's also got the free movement of principles. Mr. Speaker, on Monday, the independent Net Zero review was published by my honourable friend, the member for Kingswood. Does my right honourable friend join me in welcoming many of those recommendations, and in particular to provide clarity and continuity to all those working to decarbonise our economy, especially those uh, supporting South Shropshire Climate Action Group in my constituency? 
Well, Mr. Speaker, can I thank my right honourable friend, the member for Kingswood, for his review, but also pay tribute to my right honourable friend for his work in this area. Uh, I'm pleased that the report recognised the UK's leadership in tackling climate change and catalysing a global transformation in how other countries are dealing with it. Uh, we have, as the report acknowledged, exceeded expectations to decarbonise, and we're responding to the full range of uh, the review's requests and recommendations in the coming year. Leader of the SNP, Stephen Flynn. Mr Speaker, to promise is a thing, to keep it is another. Well, the Scottish Government kept their manifesto promise to the people, and thanks to support from members of all political parties in Holyrood, the GRR Bill was passed. Surely in that context, the Prime Minister must recognise that it is a dangerous moment for devolution when both he and indeed the Leader of the Opposition seek to overturn a promise made between Scotland's politicians and Scotland's people. Mr Speaker, let me be crystal clear that the decision in this case is centred on the legislation's consequences for reserved matters, as is laid out in the Scotland Act, which established the Scottish Parliament, which the Honourable Gentleman talks about, and at the time supported by the SNP, this bill would have a significant adverse effect on UK-wide equalities matters, and so the Scottish Secretary, with regret, has rightly acted. Mr Speaker, let me be crystal clear. This is the Conservative Party seeking to stoke a culture war against some of the most marginalised people in society, and Scotland's democracy is simply collateral damage. And on that issue of democracy, let's reflect, because on Monday the UK Government introduced legislation to ban the right to strike against the express wishes of the Scottish Government. On Tuesday, they introduced legislation to overturn the GRR against the express wishes of the Scottish Government. And this evening, they will seek to put in place legislation that rips up thousands of EU protections against the express wishes of the Scottish Government. Are we not now on a slippery slope from devolution? to direct rule. No, no, Mr Speaker, of course we're not. This is simply about protecting UK-wide legislation, about ensuring the safety of women and children. This is not about the devolution settlement. I would urge the Honourable Gentleman and his party to consider engaging with the UK Government on this bill as we did before the legislation passed, so that we can find a constructive way forward in the interests of the people of Scotland and the United Kingdom. Edward Jensen. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. The care, education and support that children receive in their earliest years has the biggest impact on their future life outcomes. And that's why the affordability, accessibility and quality of childcare is so important for families in Edisbury and right across the country. Yet, despite significant investment by the UK Government since 2010, for too many families the childcare system remains inflexible, complex and expensive. So, can I ask my right honourable friend to restate to this House his commitment to address this essential and pressing issue so that every child can have the best start in life. 
Well, I know this is a, a topic my honourable friend knows very well from his uh, own background, and he's right that it is essential to access quality childcare, which is why we provide every three- and four-year-old eligible with at least 15 hours a week of free childcare. And we are considering new plans to improve the cost, choice and affordability of childcare, whether consulting on ratios or indeed supporting more people to become childminders. The Transport Secretary implying NHS workers are deliberately putting people in danger. A Health Secretary pitting dedicated nurses against vulnerable patients. Does the Prime Minister really expect the public to believe that the very people who have dedicated their lives to saving life and limb are so reckless? Or is it not the case that this government have pushed them to their absolute limit and they have no other option but to strike? Mr Speaker, we have enormous respect and gratitude for all our public sector workers, especially those in the NHS, which is why we have backed them with not just record funding, but also record investment in more doctors and nurses, 15,000 more doctors, 30,000 more nurses, and more life-saving equipment, which will help them do their jobs, and we continue to want to engage constructively in dialogue with them. David Simmons. Well, thank you, Mr Speaker. Ryslip, Northern and Pinner has a great many car-dependent, uh, older and disabled constituents, many of whom are horrified to read that the Mayor of London may have manipulated the outcome of his own consultation may have manipulated the outcome of his own consultation in order to impose an unwanted £12.50 daily charge every time they go to a medical appointment or attend hospital. So does my right honourable friend agree with me? that any further rollout of the ULES should be paused until these matters have been fully investigated. Well, my, uh, my honourable friend has rightly pointed out that transport in London is devolved to the Labour Mayor of London, and it is disappointing that the Mayor, backed by the Leader of the Opposition, is choosing not to, listening, not to listen to the public. Expanding the zone against the overwhelming views of residents and businesses, I urge the Mayor to properly reconsider and respond to these serious concerns. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister showed his card this week by ramming through the sacking nurses' bill. He has, he, has, he has literally gone from clapping nurses to sacking them. His Transport Secretary has said that the bill is unworkable and the Education Secretary has said that it is not, it is not needed. Why does he still want the bill? Mr Speaker, it was the Labour Party that showed their cards this week when it came to backing working people. What I'd say, what, what I'd say, what I'd say to the honourable gentleman, what I'd say, what I'd say to the honourable gentleman, if he really cares about supporting patients, if he really cares about children getting the education they receive, if he really cares about working people being able to go about their lives free from disruption, he should join actually in legislation which is prevalent in many other countries, ensure minimum safety levels in our critical public services and get off the picket lines himself. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Continuing a theme, uh, evidence is now very clear that the London Mayor's sham consultation has suppressed 5,000 negative responses from members and supporters of Fair Fuel UK, of which I am the APPG chairman. Now, what 
angers me is this is a tax against my residents in South Thanet. It's a tax against Kent residents. It's a tax against all of the home counties. This is true taxation without representation. And I, I, when my right honourable friend assure me, he will do all that he can to stop this because it is a tax that is a fill-up against a failed mayor's budget and a failed mayor. Well, my, my honourable friend makes an excellent and powerful point. The Labour mayor is imposing this tax on a public which does not want it. He's right to highlight that. Expanding this zone is not something that communities want, and I look forward to working with him to urge the mayor to properly consider and respond to all these views and stop this unfair tax. When David! Mr Speaker, during a period of 12 months, two of my affiliated ones have lost their lives after being attacked by dangerous dogs, a 10-year-old boy and a senior citizen. Fatalities have also occurred in other parts of the country. It is clear that the Dangerous Dogs Act is woefully inadequate. The government has commissioned studies. It has debated the subject at length, but it has done nothing. My question is, when will the government take action on the issue of dangerous dogs? Well, my, uh, my honor- the honourable gentleman raises uh, a very important case, and I'm very sorry to hear about the specific families that he mentions. And we recognise that dog attacks can have horrific consequences. And I want to assure him that we take the issue incredibly seriously. And that's why we've established a working group between police, local authorities, and other key stakeholders to consider all aspects of tackling irresponsible dog ownership. That working group will make its recommendations later this year, and of course, the government will respond promptly. Karen Bradley. Speaker. Mr Speaker, Staffordshire Moorlands District Council, run by the Conservatives, has an excellent track record of delivering for my constituents whilst keeping council tax low. We have put a bid in to the levelling up fund, and I know that that money would make such an incredible difference to my constituents. So will he use his good office to encourage the Department for Levelling Up to look favourably on us this week? Well, um, my right uh, honourable friend has been a stalwart champion for her community and, in particular, their levelling up fund bid, which I know will make a massive difference to her community. I wish her and her constituents every success when we announce the next successful round of bidders to that fund. Sarah Green. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Many of my constituents in Cheshire and Amersham are struggling to keep up with their energy bills this winter. When they do fall behind, too often families are punished by being switched over to prepayment meters which are more expensive which does nothing to help the financial situation will the prime minister back our call to ban energy companies from forcibly installing prepayment meters and stop energy companies from switching smart meters over to prepayment meters remotely Mr. Mr. Speaker, I want to assure the Honourable Lady that Ofgem actually has specific regulations in place regarding the use of prepayment metres and how energy companies should treat those that are struggling with their bills. But what I am pleased to say is that her constituents will receive around £900 at a minimum of support with their energy bills this winter as a result of the actions of this government. Will my right honourable friend join me? in paying tribute and thanks to the several thousand people at MOD Defence Equipment and Support at Abbey Wood in my constituency who worked tirelessly to ensure that the military equipment and supplies that we have pledged to the people of Ukraine 
are dispatched quickly and efficiently. And does he agree with me that events in Ukraine are a reminder yet again of the need to invest more in our own sovereign defence manufacturing capability? Well, Mr Speaker, Honourable Friend makes an excellent point, and I'm happy to join him in paying tribute to his constituents at the MOD facility. The work they are doing is making a critical difference in the fight to combat Russian aggression in Ukraine. I know it's extremely appreciated both by the President of Ukraine and his people, and he's right also that it highlights the need for more investment, which is why we're putting £24 billion of investment into our armed forces, but also increasing the amount of kit that we manufacture here at home. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. It's almost a, a year to the day since the then Business Secretary, uh, at a visit to the British Royal Site in my constituency, promised the company £100 million and proudly boasted to the national media that he couldn't think of a, a better project that better demonstrated levelling up. Yesterday, the company and our administration haven't received not a penny in financial support from the government. Would the Prime Minister agree with me that there's not a single project in the country that better demonstrates the government's lack of industrial strategy, failure of levelling up, and abandonment of the North East? Mr Speaker, first of all, let me say my thoughts are with the company's employees and families at the time, and we stand ready to support those impacted. Now, let me just... Let me just outline for the Honourable Gentleman what exactly has happened. We did offer significant support to British Vault through the Automotive Transformation Fund, considerable amount of funding, but entirely reasonably, and it's not something that I expect the Labour Party to understand, that support was conditional on the company receiving private investment as well, which I think is a sensible protection for taxpayers. Unfortunately, that didn't materialise, but I think it's completely wrong completely wrong to take from that about the, what else is happening in the North East. Across the North East, there is new investment in the new Envision and Nissan plant, in electric vehicle manufacturing, a billion pound investment in the North East. Just look at what's happening in Teesside or on clean energy. This government is committed to the North East and it will deliver more jobs and opportunity under this Conservative administration. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister has long been a friend to business. As Chancellor, he listened to businesses in Stoke-on-Trent Central about their issues. Stoke-on-Trent has a wide range of manufacturing, fabrication and engineering excellence. Does he agree with me that growing these activities is a vital strand of our levelling up ambitions? And may I invite him to revisit my constituency to meet with them? Why, uh, my uh, my honourable friend is an excellent champion for her constituents, and particularly her advanced manufacturing uh, businesses, which I've had the pleasure of visiting with her in the past. It's important that we support those businesses on energy prices, which we are doing through the announcement the Chancellor recently made, particularly with regard to generous support for energy-intensive industries. And indeed, they can also apply for up to £315 million of capital grant funding to help them make the transition to net zero. On Butler. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, when I had breast cancer, I had phenomenal nurses. When I had to be rushed to the A&E, the ambulance crew looked after me. Unison GMB, they're on strike because no one's negotiating with them. Mr Speaker, for the first time in the Royal College of Nursing History, they have balloted and they are on strike today. I've spoken to the General Secretary of the RCN. She's adamant she wants to end the disputes. She just needs a meeting with the Prime Minister. Will the Prime Minister show leadership 
and meet with the RTN. Just a simple yes or no. Mr Speaker, at the turn of the year, the government wrote to all unions, including the RTN, to invite them for frank, open, honest, two-way dialogue with relevant secretaries of state. I'm pleased that those meetings are happening in a range of sectors, and I hope that we can find a constructive way through this. Speaker, as we approach Holocaust Memorial Day, colleagues can sign the early day motion, they can sign the book of commitment, they can attend the various commemorative services. I have to report some very sad news to the House, that the well-known Holocaust survivor, Ziggy Shipper, died at the age of 93 in the early hours of this morning. He, went out, he was a survivor of Auschwitz-Birkenau and Stotthof concentration camps. He spent his life in this country spreading his message of hope to young people. Will my wonderful friend uh, join with me in thanking Ziggy for his life, for his message, which is very vitally important as we sit here today. Do not hate. Yeah. Well, Mr Speaker, I'm very sorry to learn that Ziggy has passed away, and my thoughts are, of course, with uh, his family. Uh, I know he was a, a man with wonderful, wonderful energy and humanity, and I pay tribute to him for his work, and indeed all Holocaust survivors who have so bravely shared their testimonies. We must have never forget the Holocaust, and as my honourable friend rightly said, I know the whole House will join me and him in echoing Ziggy's message, which is poignant and accurate. Do not hate. Graham Stringer. Will the Prime Minister join his Conservative uh, predecessors in guaranteeing that the HS2 project uh, reaches Manchester, or does he still believe uh, that investment should be taken for poorer areas in the north and given to the more affluent parts of Kent? Mr Speaker, this government is, is investing record sums in uh, transport infrastructure across the country, but especially in the North and Midlands, with the £96 billion integrated rail plan, which will improve journey times east-west across the North and connectivity across the East Midlands. It's a record we're proud of, and now we'll get on with delivering it. Richard Fuller. Speaker, there's been a 40% increase in patients on roll with GPs in Biggleswade in the last 15 years, but last week proposals for a Biggleswade health hub were not progressed, despite support, financial support from Conservative-controlled Central Bedfordshire Council. So can my right honourable friend advise me what is the status of our manifesto commitment to infrastructure first, and will he and his ministers work with me to bring together the various parts of the NHS to bring the Biggleswade Health Hub back on track? Well, I'd be very happy to organise a meeting for the Honourable Gentleman to discuss how to progress his project. He's right about the importance of primary care. There is more investment going in, but we want to make sure it works for his constituency, and I look forward to arranging a meeting with him with the relevant Minister. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister is well aware of the injustice of prepayment metres, not briefly because he commented on it earlier in a question, because it's long-standing. Higher tariffs and higher social charges. Why then? Has he allowed a situation where hundreds of thousands have been forced into that penury at a time when winter is upon us and prices are rocketing and where we face a situation of 8.4 million people facing fuel poverty in April? All he requires to do is to instruct, through himself or through a minister, Ofgem to ensure that there is an equalisation of tariffs between debit and credit and also that his government takes steps to provide a fund for those who have seen debt arise because of his government's failures. Will he end that manifest injustice of the poor paying most? 
Well, Mr Speaker, I think the Honourable Gentleman's proposal would also increase bills for many millions of families, so I'm not sure it is the right approach. But what we are doing is providing around £900 of specific support with all families' energy bills this winter. There's further targeted support for those who are most vulnerable, which is absolutely the right thing to do. And, as the Chancellor has already announced, we're consulting on what the best thing to do going forward, including options, as he mentioned, such as a social tariff, as part of our wider reforms to the retail energy market. Laura Burris. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Every single country in the G7 requires some level of minimum service to be provided when strikes take place in essential public services, often with laws that actually go much further than that. Does my right honourable friend agree that the British people should be entitled to the same basic level of protection when strikes take place in these services? And does he think the former Labour Prime Minister Tony Blair had a point when he said last year the big defect at the birth of the Labour Party was its tie to organised labour? Well, Mr Speaker, my honourable friend put it very well, but she's right to make the point that what we are proposing is in line with the vast majority of other countries around the world. Indeed, many countries ban strikes in blue light services altogether. We are not doing that. We are joining countries across continental Europe and having minimum safety uh, laws, which I think reasonably the public would expect to have a level of emergency life-saving care in the event of strikes. I think that's a common-sense, reasonable position to take, and we all know why the party opposite can't bring themselves to support it. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This month, the right honourable member for Stratford-upon-Avon was forced to pay millions to HMRC to settle a tax dispute. Was the Prime Minister aware of the investigation when he appointed him to his Cabinet and as Chairman of the Conservative Party? Will the Prime Minister demand accountability from his Cabinet members about their tax affairs? Well, Mr Speaker, my uh, my honourable friend has already addressed this matter in full, and that's nothing more that I can add. I would like to begin by putting on record this House's heartbreak at the tragic death this morning of our friend Dennis, the Minister of Interior Affairs in Ukraine, and his deputy, and all those who were killed in that tragic accident. I'm sure this <coughs> House is united in our feeling on that. Turning to more local affairs, as many have pointed out, the government, I understand, is in the final furlongs of giving out its levelling up bids. And I must ask him to look kindly upon building the borough market of the Midlands and building a future Meditech hub in Rutland. So can he assure me that not just urban, but also rural areas will be levelled up? Yeah. Well, Mr Speaker, let me join with my honourable friend in in paying tribute to the family of the Interior Minister in Ukraine. I know our thoughts uh, will be with him uh, at this difficult time. Uh, and also, I can confirm to her that this government believes levelling up should apply equally everywhere across our United Kingdom. Urban and rural communities up and down the country will get the benefit of having the investment that they deserve, making sure that we can spread opportunity and ensure everyone has pride in the place that they call home. Mr Speaker, David Cameron said the Scottish Parliament was one of the most powerful devolved parliaments in the world, yet the Prime Minister continues to block the Scottish Parliament's clear mandate to allow Scots to choose their own future, and on Monday he sent his MPs through the lobbies to deny Scottish workers the right to strike, despite overwhelming Scottish Parliament opposition, and on Tuesday he sent his Secretary of State for Scotland to block an act of the Scottish Parliament voted for by 70% of MSPs, including Tories. Does he still think that David Cameron's ridiculous assertion holds any water whatsoever. Yeah. 
Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, there have been 347 acts passed by the Scottish Parliament, which is undeniably one of the most powerful devolved legislatures anywhere in the world. In this exceptional case, it is clear that the Act does have adverse consequences for UK-wide equalities legislation. So, In those very exceptional circumstances, the Scottish Secretary has regretfully taken the decision to block passage of the legislation. But as I said previously, we want to engage in a dialogue with the Scottish Government to ensure that we can find a constructive way through. The British people rightly expect us to be able to control our borders, so I was very pleased that the Prime Minister made one of his five priorities the need to stop the boats in the Channel. Can he reassure me and my constituents in Newcastle under line that not only will we bolster the patrols on the French beaches, but we will make sure that people who do make that dangerous journey and arrive are removed? Mr Speaker, my honourable friend is right that this is a priority for all our constituents. He is right to highlight the new deal that we have with France, which which increases funded patrols on French beaches by 40 per cent. As he said, we must go further to solve this problem once and for all. That means introducing new legislation that makes it unequivocally clear that if you enter the UK illegally, you should not be able to stay here, but instead will be swiftly detained and removed. Imran Hussain. Mr Speaker, last night the BBC revealed the Foreign Office knew the extent of Narendra Modi's involvement in the Gujarat massacre that paved the way for the persecution of Muslims and other minorities we see in India today, with senior diplomats reporting that the massacre could not have taken place without a climate of impunity created by Modi and that he was, in the FCO's own words, directly responsible for this violence. Given that hundreds were brutally killed and that families across India and the world, including here in the UK, are still without justice, does the Prime Minister agree with his diplomats in the Foreign Office that Modi was directly responsible? And just what more does the Foreign Office know of his involvement in this grave act of ethnic cleansing? Mr Speaker, the UK Government's position on this has been clear and long-standing and, and hasn't changed. Of course, we don't tolerate persecution where it appears anywhere, but I'm not sure I agree at all with the characterisation that the Honourable Gentleman has put forward. That completes Prime Minister's questions. I'll just let the Chamber clear.